I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're returning to the issue of science denial, a very hot topic right now because of the prevalence of anti-vaxxers, climate change denial, and phenomena of that nature. This time around, we're joined by Jack and Sarah Gorman, authors of Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Science That Will Save Us, now available in an updated and revised second edition. In the conversation to follow, we'll be touching upon a number of areas covered in the book, including the psychology behind science denial, the role of conspiracy theories and charismatic leaders in science denial, the case of anti-vaccination personality Andrew Wakefield, and much, much more. So with all that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Jack and Sarah Gorman, authors of Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Science That Will Save Us. Furthermore, I should add that I think this is a really interesting conversation that shows a lot of nuance in how we think about things like conspiracies and science and science denial. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed conducting it. So with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation. Hey, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, Sarah and Jack Gorman authors of Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Science That Will Save Us, uh, now in a revised and updated edition. Is this the the second edition? Yes, it is. Just came out in June of 2021. Awesome. Awesome. And as as we were saying before we started recording, uh, it's a very, very relevant topic right now, um, especially in this 
age of uh, things like climate change and COVID and people that will try to deny climate change or will, uh, you know, be anti-vaccination. It's a very relevant topic. And I guess I, I wanted to start in a sort of interesting place, and it may seem like a, a weird question, but I always like to start these conversations about science and science denial by asking, what is science? Because, you know, I, a while back I was asked, uh, do you believe in science by someone? And I, I found it a weird question because um, science to me isn't like a, a faith thing or a, a dogma thing. It's more a methodology and we're constantly learning and updating our knowledge and uh, through various uh, modes of study and inquiry. And sometimes we update our knowledge and new knowledge supersedes old knowledge. For me, it's just a methodology. It's not really a matter of faith. So in, in that regard, I guess, how do you guys view science? Yeah, I think your initial explanation of science is really spot on. So what it is is really a system of inquiry and a way of thinking that it doesn't tell us the quote-unquote truth. I think people who are after the quote-unquote truth will be disappointed in science because science is a way of thinking that gets us closer to understanding the world around us, the natural world, um, our own inner workings, our biology, our psychology, um, and it does that, as you said, by constantly updating information, by going about learning in a very specific way that's evidence-based, that's empirical, um, that's, that's able to be falsified so that we can make sure that we can test it and make sure that we're, we're doing the right things to understand better. But it doesn't tell us a definitive truth um, with 100% certainty. That's an important um that's an important distinction. So Jack, I don't know if you have anything. To I add. think that was exactly perfect. And I, I like your statement that people who think that, that science will give us the quote unquote truth will be disappointed. And I think that there's been a lot of, especially recently scholarship that has made it clear that there are um, beliefs that affect how we do science. We'd like to believe that science was value-free, but it's not. It's because the people doing science are scientists, they're human, and they have biases and viewpoints and expectations. So all of that influences exactly what science comes up with. Um, but essentially, if it's done in its purest form, it gets us, as Sarah said, as close as we possibly can to understanding things in ways that are useful for us. So then when we talk about science denial, I guess I wanted to ask how you got into this topic of people who, you know, deny the, the data we get from scientific studies. And I know, Jack, you've, um, I think, come at this through uh, studies on uh, guns and homes, right? Right. So, you know, one of the things that perplexes me um, is something like people saying, uh, I own a gun and I keep a gun at home for protection. And it perplexes me because, you know, people want to put that into a political context and talk about the Second Amendment and whether you have the right to have a gun or not. But if you try to leave that aside and think like a scientist, your question is, well, is that true? Does owning a gun and keeping a gun at home actually offer a person 
protection or does it actually put them in harm's way? The data that have been collected, I am persuaded, uh, come out on the side that owning a gun at home increases your risk. And therefore, again, putting aside all of the political issues, I would say that it does not make sense to have a gun at home uh, because the protection part of it is very small and the harm part is very large. And that's how I sort of got into this area. And I think Sarah was doing the same thing with vaccines. When she was asking that question, you know, we know we have very clear, solid data that the MMR vaccine protects children from harm. Uh, we have no evidence whatsoever that it puts them in any degree of harm. So why would people question the value of the MMR vaccine? Um, and that's how we both came at this. And then we found lots of other areas that were like that. I wanted to add to that with the, the gun issue. Um, I'm assuming you've talked to people who, who may have a knee-jerk reaction uh, to those studies on guns. Um, but it, it, what I find interesting is, I mean, you can talk about the data that's produced separately from whether you support the Second Amendment or not. Um, have you ever sort of had that conversation and been able to sort of um, untangle maybe people who are trying to politicize it, if you get where I'm going with that question. Yeah, well, I, I try to do that. I try to say, listen, I will um, grant your uh, belief that a person should have a right to own a gun. So let's we'll keep aside. I, you know, I've been very upfront about the fact that if it were up to me, the Second Amendment would be a repealed and uh, you know, we'd get rid of that. But let's forget about that. Let's just say you have a choice to have a gun or not. And all I'm talking about here is wh on what basis do you make that choice? What is going to be the evidence that you're going to use to make that choice? You have a complete choice. Are you, Which way are you going to choose? I think that the evidence would indicate that you should not have a gun. Um, that would be my choice. It is my choice. Uh, how do you, what, what's your evidence to the contrary that makes you think that it's a good idea to have a gun? So and that conversation can sometimes proceed a little more uh, in a more friendly, collaborative way than if we get involved too much in the politics of it. Yeah, and I, I think this will be an interesting episode because, of course, um, Thanksgiving is coming up. And I, I know a lot of people will have conversations at the dinner table about everything from religion to politics. And now even science apparently uh, right. causes people to get into fights. Um, so I, I guess for people that, you know, have relatives or friends that may engage in forms of science denialism, how should we talk to people that engage in that? Because I, I think sometimes one thing that bothers me with our discourse sometimes is we assume that the people who disagree with us on either the left or the right uh, are just dumb or stupid or, you know, uh, any other number of horrible terms. And I don't think that really convinces anyone uh, to change their mind. And I know you've uh, spoken to this in other interviews, Sarah, so maybe you want to um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I think the first thing to do in a situation like that is to try to gauge where this person is on the spectrum of sort of denial. 
Um, so it's never sort of a black or white thing. It's often that people are either, you know, completely believing of the science, they completely don't believe the science, or they're somewhere in between. And most people are somewhere in between. They're not at the extremes. And even somebody who comes across with a comment about something that sounds anti-science may be sort of more in the middle than you might think. So you kind of want to gauge that first. If they're really extreme, that they don't believe science, they've never believed science, they're never going to believe science, it may not be the best idea to engage, actually, in the conversation much further. But if there's somebody who's in the middle, which they're more likely to be, then you can really start to probe a little bit about how did they form this belief? What sorts of um, sources do they trust, do they read? Um, and what you're trying to do is pull out ambivalence. There's often a lot of ambivalence with people um, in their beliefs on something important, like whether or not to vaccinate their children or vaccinate themselves against COVID. You know, they often vacillate, they're undecided, and they may espouse some sort of conspiracy-sounding viewpoints, but at the same time, they might voice the other side as well, and they're going back and forth. So you can help them, guide them, really, by slowing them down, helping them sort of see where where they may have faltered in their logic, and just, you know, saying that you'll continue the conversation. You may not be able to get them to where you want them to be in one conversation, but you know, definitely if they're screaming and yelling at the table, you may want to take a step back. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008. And he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now, again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U Y O O dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at Alexander dot com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. So with regards to the vaccines, it's interesting because I actually think that there's been a problem with how we have talked about vaccines for years, even before COVID. I mean, people forget, but I mean, we had, you know, people like uh, Jenny McCarthy 
pushing a lot of anti-vax stuff on national television shows in, in the 90s and the 2000s, and Andrew Wakefield and these other uh, sort of characters. So what's the origin point for a lot of this skepticism towards vaccines? I think it originated in a particular community of people who are looking for answers. So in the case of Andrew Wakefield and Jenny McCarthy, what you saw was that parents of of children who had autism or some other disorder that, you know, childhood disorder that's, you know, pretty significant, but also unexplained by modern medicine, they were looking for answers that didn't have to do with blaming themselves. I think it's very common for parents of children with disorders that develop in childhood, especially mothers, to think that they did something wrong in their pregnancy or in the early childhood that caused the disorder. And so in order to, you know, partially relieve themselves of that, they're looking for other answers. And this was a very appealing answer because it, you know, shifted the blame away from them and gave them a very concrete point at which this something went wrong. And I think that it also allowed people to form community. Um, one thing that people don't often talk about is that it's very lonely to have a child who has a developmental disorder. Um, a lot of your friends might have children who are neurotypical and you feel that you can't relate to them and their children in the same way and they don't really know how to talk to you about your child. So it can be very isolating. So it allows for a little bit more of a community of people who are coming together around this advocacy against vaccines. So there were a number of things there, group psychology and, you know, wanting to understand something that's really unexplained that caused this to start. And then I think it spread in part because, you know, there was an underlying suspicion, especially of pharmaceutical companies, um, which is understandable to a certain extent, but, you know, it, the, the movement sort of tapped on people's natural inclinations towards suspicion and toward, you know, just sort of increased research that people were doing on their own, on the internet, and the more access to sort of, um, misinformation, things that are not, you know, correct and are not really sanctioned by the medical community. So all those factors sort of came together and allowed this thing to take off. And I was wondering, I I know you cover it in the book, and I I find it a really interesting case study. Is um, I was wondering if you could speak to the sort of uh, inquiries you do into Wakefield specifically, and also uh, Brian Hooker, maybe for listeners that aren't familiar with them, you could explain uh, what happened with them and where they went wrong. Yeah. So Andrew Wakefield was a, um, I say was because he lost his medical license. He was a uh, physician in the UK and um, he, I believe was a, uh, I think he was a gastroenterologist. That's correct. Gastroenterologist. Um, And he basically fraudulently created this study where he was taking money from lawyers who were suing vaccine manufacturers for vaccine injuries. Um, and that was funding his study. And his study, which was published in The Lancet, which is a very prestigious medical journal in the UK, um, was uh, only had 12 children in it. It was not randomized, which is absolutely not best practice for medical research. And he falsified the data, basically. And he basically said that the vaccines, uh, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine were causing all of these negative impacts on, on children, including autism. And so, you know, as you can imagine, that 
paper was widely distributed. You know, this is a time where they're we're seeing rates of autism go up. We don't understand it. We don't understand why. And here's somebody who claims to have an explanation. Over time, um, the Lancet eventually retracted the paper in 2011 because uh, based on the combination of the fact that it was very poor methodology and also they realized there was uh, investigation into the actual fraud that went on here and realized that even what he had in the study wasn't true. So the paper was retracted, but it was, you know, so much later that people, it already had gotten into the public consciousness and it was sort of too late to sort of turn the tide on what people were already believing about vaccines and autism. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an open question as to how this thing, you know, was able to pass muster at the Lancet in the first place, because it's really on its face is not methodologically sound. Um, but then, of course, obviously, with the discovery of the fraud, it was immediately retracted once that was recognized. So, you know, there was there was too much of a delay, I believe, between the publication and, and the sort of taking it back that occurred. Um, and so he's still a big figure. He moved to the U.S. He lost his medical license in the U.K. He moved to the U.S. I believe he's in Texas now, and he sort of runs his own kind of institute where he, among other things, gives children with autism what he calls treatments um, to help uh, to get the vaccine, you know, the, the vaccine toxins, he calls them, out of their bodies, which sometimes can be dangerous. So he makes a lot of money doing that as well. That really gets into this issue of, and I, you have a whole chapter on it in the book of, uh, Charismatic leaders, and, and you actually mentioned a few that I'm I'm kind of familiar with. We mentioned uh, uh, Wakefield. Also, I was uh, fascinated to read about uh, Peter, I think Doesberg, who had some very discredited views on HIV and AIDS. People should probably read about that. How do these charismatic leaders sort of pop up? And are charismatic leaders uh, always bad? Do they have purposes at times? And what effect do they have on science denial? They're not always bad. I think I mentioned in the book that, that Martin Luther King Jr. was a charismatic leader. Um, and he was obviously did a lot of good, was able to, what charismatic leaders can do is mobilize people. So when the cause is good, you know, that's, that's really a great thing. Um, and, but when they're lying to people and misleading people, a lot of cult leaders are charismatic leaders. Um, you know, that is obviously a problem and they're very, they are kind of irresistible. I watched a lot of videos of many of these people, you know, including eventually Donald Trump, who I think is also a charismatic leader. And, you know, you kind of, if, if you're, if you're taking away all your preconceived notions and you're just really listening to what they're saying and how they're communicating, you can kind of see how people can be taken in by this. Absolutely. Um, they're very, you know, they tend to be sort of people who are on the fringes of the establishment. They are incredibly, um, they cast themselves as victims. You know, there's a little bit of conspiracy theory thinking in there where they talk about that the people from the mainstream are sort of coming after them and they're, you know, on this righteous journey to bring the truth to people. And, you know, they, they focus on big issues, very large sort of emotional issues of right and wrong versus, you know, what scientists tend to do, which is talk about the data and the facts. So they, they really draw people in. They also, you know, make sustained eye contact and 
and cast a very strong sense of an us versus them. So they draw people in and, you know, they, if they're doing that to spread, you know, false falsities, it's obviously very dangerous. Jack, did you have anything you'd like to add to that aspect of the conversation, the charismatic leaders? Well, I think a couple of things. One is this attention we gave to charismatic leaders was part of our wrestling with the topic that you mentioned in the very beginning of our talk today, which is that knowledge deficit is not the cause of science denial in most cases. So that what's fascinating about charismatic figures is that they're able to use psychological techniques to make people not care about the facts. A person can actually hear the facts, even on some level know what the facts are, and still be swayed by this psychological persuasion, uh, by this need to identify with a figure that seems to be strong, or that identification with somebody who sees themselves as a victim and an outsider. Um, and that highlights how science denial is primarily a psychological phenomenon and not simply a matter of not knowing the facts. Um, and I think uh, you know this business of the, the very familiar trope of uh, the world is against me, nobody uh, believes me, but I really know the truth. Now that can sometimes be true. Another, Sarah mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. People were really against Martin Luther King Jr. We know that the FBI had a whole file um, and, and were really against him. So, uh, but he never really, if you think about it, he ne that was not his main message. His main message was not, I alone know the truth. So we have to be very, very careful because it's one of the very familiar things that these charismatic figures who promote science denial uh, say is I alone know the truth. And whenever you hear that from anybody, that has to immediately raise a red flag. So I just wanted to add to that, since we're sort of getting into the territory of talking about an another subject you cover in the book, which is uh, conspiracy theories. And it's it's interesting for me because as a journalist, I do tend to look at things like, if I were looking at Andrew Wakefield, I would look at, well, what are his financial relationships? Uh, what is he profiting off of? And in a lot of ways, that in itself lends itself to conspiratorial thinking at times. And I think it's interesting in the book, you sort of try to grapple with sometimes people really do conspire. Sometimes profit motive does mean something, but other times it doesn't. So how are we supposed to untangle these things? You know, it's, it's something we did wrestle with uh, uh, for sure. And we gave examples of real conspiracies, like the assassination of Abraham Lincoln was really a conspiracy. There really were a bunch of conspirators who got together and planned that. Um, and, and there are other examples of that. And I think, you know, just this week, uh, very much talked about throughout the world of medicine is a paper that appeared in the BMJ, which used to be the British Medical Journal in which these investigators did an amazing job of tracing out all of the conflicts of interest that involved the manufacturers of medical products, including medications. And the big field of healthcare, not just uh, doctors, but 
uh, NGOs who are involved in healthcare and hospitals and even consumers who are subject to uh, all of this. And so when you read this paper and people are really buzzing a lot about it, you have to say, boy, it's like a conspiracy to uh, control us and to make us do things that are not good for us, to, to actually accept things that are not good for us. So piercing what is a conspiracy and what is uh, just a manufactured one uh, is not easy. Uh, we say that in the book. But one of the things that tips us off is think about the plausibility of these of a conspiracy. So, for example, you mentioned Peter Duisberg, for example. Um, he was somebody who cooked up this incorrect idea that the virus that we call HIV isn't really the cause of AIDS. Um, we have, you know, abundant evidence that HIV is the cause of AIDS. Um, now, he believed that there was a conspiracy against him of organized traditional science was, and scientists were all against him and suppressing him. And it's not that difficult if you know something about how science works uh, that to, to pierce that idea. Um, it's implausible that that many scientists could really have gotten together and said, okay, we're going to uh, take down this guy Duisberg because we don't like his idea. And the more you get into the things he said, the more you realize how implausible they were. Uh, and so I think that it is possible to use uh, some rigorous inquiry to, to see what conspiracy theories might actually uh, you know, have some merit, like the ones you're talking about where you're interested in financial ties or the one that was in the BMJ to, uh, just this week, uh, versus these other ones that are really just not plausible. Yeah, it also leads into another question I had, and, and uh, maybe, Sarah, you can deal with this one, or, or Jack. You know, since we mentioned Deusberg, and I, I'm also thinking about a number of things related to this, but I think within science, skepticism is important, right? Because uh, someone like Deusberg was a uh, molecular biologist, and it took other scientists being skeptical and saying, hey, I think that's wrong, to question that. And I, I think we've had other incidents uh, historically, where it was good that we maybe questioned the dominant narrative that maybe biologists had about things like eugenics in, in the early 20th century, the 19th century. So there's been times where skepticism is, well, I think it's central to science. So what's the difference really between healthy skepticism and science denial? I think it has to do with the way you approach the information. So I think part of the problem with science denial is that there's a identical response to every piece of data that comes up. So it's like, no, you're just saying that because the pharmaceutical companies are pushing you to say that, or you're just saying that because, you know, they're after me, et cetera. Um, and so it's like this very fast, almost automatic response. And I think whenever you're having an automatic response, you have to question, um, is this really adequate? Is this really accurate? Um, and I think the skepticism is a slower form of inquiry and of thinking where, you know, you take a step back and you really investigate, you know, what is going on here? I'm not sure I believe this. Let me, let me, let me withhold judgment though until I really look in, look into it. I'm just, I'm saying I'm uncertain. I'm not saying that I don't believe this. 
Um, so I think, you know, just having that more neutral stance where you're really inquiring, where it's a slower process, uh, there's probably more rigor that goes on in terms of looking into the actual information and, you know, also probably trying to bring in other people um, at a certain point who are not biased or at least not too biased um, is also helpful for that process. But I think that's different from the kind of automatic thinking processes that go with the more conspiracy thinking. And I, I would say, too, one thing I think is important about this book is that you sort of point out that everyone is prone to us, even all three of us talking right now, can be prone to forms of denialism, right? Absolutely. Uh, the patterns of thinking are fundamental psychological traits. And, you know, I would say that I've been interested of, of late in conspiracy thinking in particular, because I think it's very prevalent, but not in the way that people think it is. I think it's very prevalent in a kind of low-key way, where people will sort of pepper their thoughts or their speech with these little things that sort of sound a little conspiratorial. And it's very common, especially people talking about the COVID vaccines or, um, you know, things having to do with sort of pharmaceutical companies or the medical establishment. There's a lot of sort of low-level conspiratorial thinking in the general conversation. And so it just goes to show you, you know, there is a difference between that and sort of full-blown conspiracy thinking um, and what amounts to sometimes joining what's like a cult. But it does go to show you that the little the little sort of streams of thought are very common and are very natural. At the same time, sometimes when I talk to people about this issue of, of conspiracy theories, you know, I've had some people act as if oh, uh, it's like 50% of the population believes in this QAnon uh, stuff. And I, I actually think that that's an overstatement. Uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, we're doing um, better than we realize in ways. I think a lot of this stuff is still much more fringe than we realize, or, or it, it seems like it's more widely held than it is because of internet visibility and, and social media. But I, I think in some ways, we do have a large portion of the population that does trust in our institutions and trusts in their doctors. I was wondering if either of you could comment on that. Is there that sort of glimmer of hope where, uh, yeah. at, you know, there are still significant portions of the populations that aren't as um, prone to science denial? You know, we uh, were a little bit surprised when we did uh, some online focus groups with various communities about vaccine uh, hesitancy. And one of the questions we asked people was who do you trust the most for your healthcare information? And again, to our surprise, the by far most common answer was my doctor. Now, uh, I did this uh, work with Sarah and with our chief medical officer at our organization, Critica, who's a physician, and I'm a physician. And you know, physicians tend to think that, gosh, nobody listens to a word we say. Uh, so it was kind of a nice surprise to see that people mostly trust doctors, and there are other data showing that, that, that that's actually a, remains a very trusted source of healthcare information is the physicians and nurses. Um, and you're also right that emphasis can be misplaced. So right now, in the vaccine denial area, a lot of attention is being played to a football player named Aaron Rodgers, who plays for the uh, Green Bay Packers. He's a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. And he's made a whole big thing about uh, not getting vaccinated. And it's all over the internet. People are talking about it and everything. Um, just give you a simple 
fact, which is 94% of the football players in the National Football League are actually vaccinated and they're all healthy and playing football. Uh, so we tend to focus on this uh, one person uh, and don't focus, as you say, on this great majority of people who are following what uh, is reasonable healthcare advice. It's interesting, too. I had a relative recently uh, who had refused to get the vaccination for a very long time. And uh, after they saw their physician, they were like, oh, I'm going to get it now. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that plays go. into what you're talking about. Um, I, I was going to ask, so, you know, I, I'll be honest here and say when the vaccine first came out, I, I think I was hesitant at first because I was like, oh, is this completely FDA approved and things like that? So I was going to ask, now I changed my views on that later, but how do we talk to someone that maybe is hesitant at sure. at first uh, because of things like uh, being worried about FDA approval and, and stuff like that? How would you talk to someone uh, that has like a hesitancy, but not necessarily driven by uh, really out there or, or fringe conspiratorial thinking? So we know actually that the majority of people who are what we call vaccine hesitant uh, are vaccine hesitant because of fear, not because of beliefs that Bill Gates has put microchips in the vaccines. And so the, our approach has been to start by acknowledging that that fear is understandable, that these are brand new med medicines, uh, that uh, people have naturally concerns about something that's brand new, and that indeed it did seem like this happened awfully fast, didn't it? I mean, it seemed like it took a year to develop COVID-19 vaccines and that we acknowledge that that does seem very fast. So we start by trying to say to the person, we understand how you feel and your fears are not unreasonable. And we acknowledge their uh, legitimacy. And here's why we think that we can address those fears. And once you start with that platform, you can have a much better conversation with people. In the past, people have dealt with that by saying you're wrong. Um, and that's the way to make somebody even more fearful. Um, and so we've had those conversations go much better when we start uh, in that way. This also, well, go on, Sarah. Did you have something oh, you yeah. to add to that? I, I was just going to add, I think that the the medical and public health community did a poor job of communicating about what coronavirus is and what mRNA vaccines are in terms of the fact that they're not new. So we called it COVID-19. And so people were just thought it was invented in 2019. And that's not, coronaviruses are not, were not invented in 2019. They existed before that. We've had SARS, we've had other um, illnesses that are coronaviruses. So we do understand something about coronaviruses in general. And therefore, you know, there have been, there has been work on vaccines over time, um, including, you know, general work on sort of mRNA vaccine technology. So I think it, it's good to actually just underscore some of that gently, as Jack says, that you're not telling people they're wrong or ignorant. It's definitely not their fault, because I don't think that we did a good job of communicating this to begin with, um, but to give people a little bit more feeling that they're on a firm ground. And then to also, if you have a story or you can talk about people you know who may have been hesitant and then overcame that and got the vaccine, I think that's very powerful for people. 
um, because there are these things that, that called injunctive norms where you assume that everyone else is not doing it or doing it, whatever you think, they think it too. And it just helps you feel more justified in what you're thinking. But if you you know, get a sense that other people may be doing this a little bit differently and it's not true that everyone is hesitating and not getting the vaccine, that can help sort of motivate, uh, you know, sort of that pro-social behavior. I think it's interesting too, when talking about the pandemic, you know, I, I've heard people say, uh, well, there were things that we were told at the beginning that, you know, we, you know, they flip-flopped uh, later on. And I'm like, I, I don't, think it's necessarily flip-flopping it's just as we discover new data uh you know through scientific discovery uh we adjust uh what we know uh about this pandemic and how to deal with that and i I think that people don't realize that's sort of how science works so is there a way that we could communicate that better to the public We, we've we've uh, written a bit about that so-called flip-flopping situation, and I don't blame people for having that reaction because I think that we have misrepresented science from the minute that children first study science in the first grade until uh, all the way through. Not not, a, not to interrupt you. I just yes. want to say I think I have to be honest and say that my profession, journalism, I think has played a role in that because I know a lot of journalists will cover science and they're going off press releases where they don't really right. understand what the studies are saying and they're just going off those press releases so you know it, it, there's a lot of different factors involved in it but go on i'm sorry no i think you're absolutely right and i think you know there's a lot of uh, talk within the journalism field about you know what are the best ways to report on science especially because most Traditional media outlets now no longer have science specific science journalists, but rely on general journalists to write science articles. Um, but you know, we 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 teach children right up on through adulthood a bunch of facts about science as if they're written in stone. We don't teach people what you just said that this is the way science works. That science is always changing. That there's all there are always new data. That's why we work so hard and why people like me love doing science, because there's always something new. And it's not uncommon that something new that we find out by doing a new experiment uh, shows that something we previously thought was true isn't. Uh, But we have done a very poor job of uh, starting to teach science at the earliest levels as a process rather than simply a bunch of facts. And even when people have tried to correct that, so there's a lot of emphasis now in science education on hands-on teaching where children uh, actually do things with their hands and, and uh, to, to learn science. But even there, they're more like recipes than they are what really goes on in a laboratory. So there's an expected right outcome that you're supposed to get. Um, and so again, we're failing at teaching people uh, that science is a process. And so it's not, um, a surprise that when, for example, uh, data emerged that changed our minds about whether face masks are advisable for people to prevent transmission of a airborne virus, that people said, well, wait a minute, uh, before you said we didn't need masks, now you say we do need masks, you guys can't make up your mind, uh, must not be, you must not know what you're talking about. 
Um, instead of our being much more careful to say, this is the information we have now. This is our recommendation based on what we know now. And that is always subject to change as new data come in. Do you want to add to that at all, Sarah, or? Well, I would just say it's interesting because I think one of the biggest things that people cite for their mistrust, specifically of Dr. Fauci, is that he, they think he flip-flopped on, on masks. They're very, people are still very upset about that, which, you know, is, is not, you know, again, like that's not the process. Um, but I do think, I mean, one thing you can do is kind of reframe it for people. Instead of thinking about it as flip-flopping, let's think about it as both the scientific process, as Jack outlined so well, but also there's a certain amount of transparency here. They're communicating with you as they think they know things. And when they find out that they're wrong, they correct it. And so shouldn't we actually trust people more for being transparent? It, we don't we don't have to go after people because they may have been wrong. You know, that's, they're not willfully misleading you, but they are being transparent about a process that, you know, is ever evolving. And, you know, this will, this will continue to happen in emergency situations that are unfolding like a pandemic. So, so before we wrap up, I want to get into solutions, but I also wanted to ask um, one thing that bothers me a lot about science denial today and also just the way people view science is I, I don't think science is liberal or conservative or left or right. I don't think it's, uh, I, I mean, I've had Christians say, well, if I believe in this, does that make me, uh, if I believe in this science, does that make me anti my religion or anti-Christian or, and I, I don't think science is any of those things. Um, but we seem to be in this spot now where a, a lot of people think science stands for uh, something they're against. And I, I don't think that's what science is about. About at all, you know, I, I think someone could be uh, a, a, a believer in a religious faith and still agree that you know, oh, this is the empirical data we have. Do, do you think there's a way we can maybe depoliticize science? I hope there is, and uh, of course, one of the things that motivated us to write the new edition of the book is our dismay at seeing how politicized it's been. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is the fact that we adopted viewpoints that sometimes were not in keeping with our political group. Uh, so two good examples of that are that when we examine the evidence about whether or not genetically modified foods are safe or not safe, um, you know, we're typical Northeastern liberal type people and in our uh, groups, it's generally felt that GMOs are terrible things. And yet when we tried to look at the data for that, uh, we came away with a pretty clear answer that they're not harmful for human consumption at all. And in fact, uh, can be very useful for a whole lot of reasons, including helping to cut down on starvation and some diseases. The same thing with nuclear energy where uh, our peers tend to feel that nuclear energy is a bad thing. When we looked at the data, uh, we came away thinking that it's a lot safer than people think and uh, would really go a long way to solving the climate crisis that we have right now. 
Th those are uncomfortable for people to have to do that. Uh, it's much easier to adopt scientific ideas that are in keeping with your peer group. Um, and I think that people have gone much too far in that direction now, where if you're a liberal person, you have to believe X, Y, and Z. And if you're a conservative person, you have to add X, Y, and Z. And what we're trying to do is say, let's just try to step out of those boxes and really look at what the data show. Would you be able to add anything to that, Sarah? I was really interested in getting your thoughts on, on this whole issue of the politicization of science. And I, I guess just the, I, I think people have way too many uh, ideas that th there's like a tribal affiliation if you're pro-science or anti-science. I don't, I, I, it's a very weird phenomena to me, uh, especially yeah. when I, since I mentioned the religious thing, I, I don't think there has to be a conflict between someone having a faith and, and someone being a, a believer in the scientific data, but go on. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had an immediate answer to how to depoliticize science. It's become so contentious and it really pains me to see that because it's just, it seems so you know, counter to what science is really about, which is just the open inquiry, um, as I said earlier. And it's not really, I mean, it can't be about preconceived notions because that will bias you. So it's, it's very upsetting and disturbing to me to see how political it's gotten. Um, you know, I think that one thing we can do, and I, we talk about this a little bit in the book, is to encourage the formation of groups around certain scientific issues or even around, you know, just looking into the facts more. Um, if people can sort of create little groups around them, social groups around, and what it can be online, it doesn't have to be in person, around looking into, you know, really investigating issues, I think that can help offset some of the um, you know, anxiety people might get about stepping away from some of their primary affiliations. I also think that just in general, the more we can encourage people to have varying identities. So it is true that people who are tied to one facet of their identity, like their whole identity is about being Christian or something, as you said, it's harder for them to deviate from the group because they don't have other identities that sort of play against each other on a regular basis. But when somebody is a Christian and an academic and an opera singer, you know, and a marathon runner, you know, whatever it might be. There's a little bit more variety there. They're a little bit more used to different identities, perhaps rubbing up against each other. And, you know, there is evidence to show that people like that can be a little bit more open to going against the grain of certain portions of their identity without sort of feeling so threatened. So I think the more we can encourage people um, to think about different facets of their identity and get involved in different things, it, it actually does help, um, especially, you know, if they're, if they're so focused on political identity as, as sort of everything um, about their themselves. I just had two more questions. The, the first one being, you deal in this book with the way institutions of science have been uh, attacked so could you talk a little bit to that subject? What do we mean by uh, the sort of assaults on our institutions? What what are they? And uh, are there examples that we could specifically bring up in that regard? We saw that, you know, most graphically in the previous administration, where uh, there was a trend to decertify experts, to get rid of scientific advisory boards and to put political considerations over scientific ones. 
And this affected the three main scientific institutions that are in a regulatory uh, area, the EPA, the FDA, and the CDC, uh, and to some extent, the National Institute of Health as well. Um, and that is an assault on science. There were unquestionably that, that occurred. Uh, we saw that there were things going on even before that, though, that were troubling, especially in the lack of funding. Um, if you look at the FDA, for example, um, FDA was constantly being asked uh, to do more things without more funding. Um, and that uh, stretched them thin. Um, and the same thing was true at CDC and to some extent at EPA. Uh, we saw a lot of bad trends during those years with EPA where scientists at the EPA who are not politicians, they're career scientists, chemists, um, were, were saying this is a toxic substance that shouldn't be allowed on the market. And because of industry considerations that were seen as more important to the administration, uh, they were silenced. And so that uh, happened over and over again. We're seeing, fortunately, uh, some relief from that now. Um, I don't know that it's perfect. And I think that people still have trust issues about FDA and CDC, for example. Um, but I think that things have gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because I, I think in the book you mentioned, you know, a, a lot of politicians, and I don't know how many of them are still saying this, but it, it used to be a common refrain. Uh, I'm not a scientist. You know, you mentioned right. that in the book. <laughs> Sarah, would you like to add anything to uh, what Jack and I were saying there? Yeah, I would just say in terms of I, I, in terms of sort of I don't know if I call this an assault, maybe it is, but I think that public health is wildly underfunded in our country, and it's also just wildly not paid enough attention to. You know, it's not given its due. I think right now it's having a moment because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But even so, you know, the CDC is equipped to surveil and understand what's going on, but they're not fully equipped with sort of a, an emergency preparedness plan. You know, we weren't ready for this. And people in the public health community have been saying for many, many years that we need to prepare. We need to have preparedness the same way we would for a, a natural disaster, which we also aren't that well prepared for. But you know, for a public health crisis, whether it has to do with uh, this kind of an infectious disease or, you know, even bioterrorism or whatever the threat might be. And, you know, they mostly get ignored. And so I'm just, I'm sort of on the edge of my seat to see if this scenario changes anything. You know, there, there are various perspectives that people have on whether our reaction to COVID is a good, you know, something that looks good about humanity or whether it's a negative, you know, people fought, they didn't take it seriously. There's a lot of bad things that came out of it that, that, that show that something that should have been a wake up call maybe wasn't, but I'm hoping that this will be a wake up call, at least to the government, that we need more attention to these kind of preparedness activities. We need the infrastructure and the funding to ensure that, you know, a, a response that, can be carried out that really is adequate. So wrapping up here, I guess the last thing I want to touch upon was this issue of um, solutions, because that's, I think what everyone wants to hear about today is well, what's the solutions to the, this problem of science denial. And I'll be honest here. I don't know that there's, you know, a one size fits all solution. I, I think you guys would agree that, you know, it, it's not that simple. Like most things it's 
complex, but what, what are some of your ideas about maybe how we can combat this issue? I'll mention two, and Sarah, I'm sure we'll have some others. One is uh, something that we've been doing very actively in the last couple of years, which is learning how to intervene to counteract misinformation online in real time, because people get a lot of their information about health and science on the internet now. And it no longer is a situation where scientists have a one-way street to give messages to the public. The public also sends out messages because we're all on social media, we're all on the internet, and we're all both the audience for and the purveyors of health information. And so we've been working very hard to refine methods for going right online and interacting with people in real time. And I think there has to be more of that. We call it infodemiology. And I think there has to be a lot more of that that has to be broadened. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that we talk a lot about is reforming science education, as I mentioned before. So starting at the earliest ages, we have to make people like science. If we just make people memorize facts, if your job is to memorize the periodic table of the elements, you're gonna hate science. You're also gonna think that science is just a bunch of facts. And then if something changes, you're gonna be upset. So we have to reform how we teach science so that it is taught as a process that's ever undergoing change and ever adapting to new data. So those are two things I think will help uh, in the battle against science denial. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the second point about education and the, the hatred of science. So it's interesting because there's some research to suggest that one of the biggest predictors of sort of resisting scientific misinformation is not your knowledge about science, but actually your curiosity about science. And so this suggests that this sort of interest in science and, you know, ultimately, hopefully a love of science is often what protects people against misinformation and science denial more than just the bare, you know, minimum of the facts that they know or don't know. So I think it's really, really important. It's just, it's such a direct connection between sort of not just teaching students that, you know, this is a scientific method and they, you know, that's really important. They need to understand what it really is, but also fostering a love for science because it, a lot of people hate it. And with the fact memorization, you know, it can be very boring. But I just wanted to emphasize that. And I would say the other thing that we really need to work on that I'm very concerned about, especially after the, some of the research we've done at Critica, is the trust uh, issue. So I think that people still do trust their personal doctors, as Jack mentioned earlier. But I think that the trust in the government has been seriously eroded. And unfortunately, I don't think that this is going to be our last pandemic. You know, I think we're going to, everyone is, knows that there's going to be more threats. And we need to be able to, people need to be able to take the recommendations of the government agencies that are involved in science and health. And right now, you know, that trust has just been so eroded. People are tired of hearing from the government. They don't trust them. And, you know, it's very pervasive. So I think we need to have a concerted effort to understand what that mistrust is really about, um, you know, how it is showing its face in different communities and different parts of the country and then we need to figure out, you know, like, how can we better communicate and message to people, both to repair the trust, but in the future, you know, if there is a crisis, and I think there will be, um, how to really uh, 
go about that communication in a way that's much more effective. I think that's a great note to end on. And I, I would just add, just because, you know, I, I, I'm wanting to end on an optimistic note. I mean, as much of an issue as I think science denial is, I'm not entirely pessimistic either. I mean, I, I think we've had um, difficulties in the past with a lot of similar things. I mean, within academia in the 90s, there was the the science wars, uh, which people can look up that. That's a whole other topic. But I, I think both sides of that debate have sort of uh, come to consensus points and tampened down their criticisms of each other. And I think it's worked out uh, for everyone within, you know, sort of academic discourse that we've put aside these sort of criticisms of each other, at least uh, calm down a bit. And, you know, I, I think there's glimmers of hope is what I'm getting at. And I, I think uh, we've gotten over hurdles before when it comes to issues with regards to science and science denial. And I think we'll keep doing that. And I, I wonder if you guys uh, share the same sort of sentiment. I certainly do. I love the way you put that. I think there is always hope for uh, improving our relationship with science and scientists. And I think that we see that people really are interested in science, even though there's mistrust and there's denial and things like that. But people have maintained, and surveys show this, an interest in what science is showing. Uh, and we just have to encourage that. <clears throat> One of the things I, I always tell people is, think about the things in your life that were made possible by very complicated science, like the GPS system which I couldn't personally live without at this point. I can't believe there was a time when we didn't have GPS. And when I tell people that GPS is only possible because of Einstein's theory of relativity, they say, wow, is that really true? And I tell them, yes, it's only the way science developed and then engineers were able to use that science to make something that you find useful in your everyday life. And people really maintain a huge amount of interest in that. And so that's, I think, where a lot of the hope comes from. Yeah, I agree. And it's what I said earlier about curiosity. People go to science museums. They're interested in being, you know, in technology and um, getting involved in those sectors and STEM. Um, you know, it's a huge part of education now. So I think that, I think as Jack says, there's definitely hope for it. Um, and I would say it's also important not to overstate people's resistance to science, because as we talked about earlier, that creates this perception that it's the norm. Um, and then people fall into those beliefs more easily and the behaviors that follow. So we have to be very careful about accurately reflect, reflecting. For example, it's always very important to, to me to state that most children get their childhood vaccinations on the schedule recommended by the CDC. The vast, vast majority. There are pockets of communities in the country where their children are under vaccinated and then sometimes there are outbreaks because obviously these are infectious diseases. Um, but for the majority of people, they are going to the doctor, they are getting the recommended vaccines, they are believing in science and medicine. So, um, you know, I think it's very important to keep that perspective. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Sarah and Jack Gorman for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can they keep up with your work and purchase a copy of the book? Uh, denying to the Grave. Uh, the book is available on Amazon and in our, uh, through our uh, publisher, Oxford University Press. 
And then we also are running an organization called Critica. People can go to our website at Critica, C-R-I-T-I-C-A, science.org. That does it for this edition of Parallax Use. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jack and Sarah Gorman, authors of, again, Denying to the Grave, Why We Deny the Science That Will Save Us. That was formally called Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us. The second edition uh, has the word science instead of facts. In case you were confused, uh, at the beginning I referred to it uh, by the one title rather than the other title. So if you had any confusion about that, that's why the second edition is again called Denying to the Grave Why We Ignore the Science That Will Save Us. As always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Should be posting some more exclusive content on the Parallax Views Patreon page for $5 and above tier supporters. There's a $1 tier, $5 tier, $10 tier, $15 tier, and even a $100 tier. Any amount will help. And of course, at the $10 and above tiers, you get a producer's credit shout out. So, producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Catherine, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tiers or above of my Patreon page at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You, along with the few very gracious sponsors we have, are what keeps this show alive, and your support is very, very, very much appreciated. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.